You're listening to an audio message from Harvest Bible Chapel in Granger, Indiana. For more information, visit our website at harvestgranger.org. Get your Bibles open to Luke chapter 3. As you're finding your place there, I want to make sure that you understand how important next Sunday is at Harvest Bible Chapel. I cannot emphasize enough how important it is for you to be here in your place. Next Sunday is one of the most significant days in the history of Harvest Bible Chapel. Have I made my point? Now, now next week is February the 3rd, 2019. Does anybody here know why that is a significant date for Harvest Bible Chapel? Do you know what it is? It's our 10th birthday as a church. 10 years ago, a bunch of people crammed together in North Point Elementary School, and we opened the doors for the very first time to launch Harvest Bible Chapel. We want to celebrate what God has done in the previous 10 years, and we want to set a direction for where we're going in the next 10 years. And on top of the celebration, I am going to make an announcement in church next week that is going to be huge. It's going to be a huge announcement in church. So huge. It's the most important announcement that's ever been made in the history of Harvest Bible Chapel. It's so exciting. I want you to be here for that. Got to be here. Tell your small group. Get everybody here. And let's, let's celebrate where we're going in the church. Did I make my point? Got to be here in church. All committed to be in church next week. No matter how cold it is, no matter how many feet of snow it come, we're going to be here. Thank you for risking your lives this morning, by the way, to be in church. And uh, you're showing the priority of worship here this morning. Now, today is the last in the series that we've entitled Behold. In the first three chapters here of the book of Luke, Luke is writing to help us to behold who Jesus is. He's literally writing to his his friend named Theo that he wants to behold who Jesus is. And then he brings all these witnesses forward and asks them, who do you think Jesus is? We hear from the angel. Who did the angel think Jesus was? Son of God. Then the shepherds. Who did the shepherds think Jesus was? Son of God. And then we hear from Mary. Who did Mary think Jesus was? The son of God. And then we hear from the old people, Simeon and Anna. Who did they think Jesus was? And then John the Baptist. Who did John the Baptist think Jesus was? This morning, we are going to bring the witness, the ultimate witness, God the Father. And we are going to ask him, who do you think Jesus is? The question is answered in Luke chapter 3, beginning in verse 21. Follow along. It says this. Wait, I've got to get to Luke 3, 21. There it is. Okay. Now, when all the people were baptized and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove and a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Question, who does God the Father think Jesus is? His only beloved son in whom he is well pleased. And so Luke presents to us the ultimate witness. God the Father says Jesus is the son of God. He was sent from God as God. And we find in this 
passage the doctrine of the Trinity. Now, the word Trinity is not a word that's found anywhere in our Bibles, but it's a word that theologians have used to help us understand the very nature of God. This is what Christians believe about the Trinity. We believe that God is three persons. Each person is worthy of the same worship. There is only one God. Got it? That's the best that theologians have ever been able to come up with to describe the Trinity. God is three persons. Each person is worthy of the same worship. There is only one God. You say, I'm confused. Yeah, so are all the theologians. But what we find in this passage is all three persons of the Trinity. Do you see it? The Spirit descended upon Jesus like a dove. Jesus was the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, and God the Father speaks. All three persons show up here in the Trinity. And that's a very important doctrine for us. You say, oh, I don't understand it. Welcome to the club. The theologian Augustine said, if you deny the Trinity, you will lose your soul. If you try to explain the Trinity, you will lose your mind. So, it's just the best that we can come up with. Jesus was the Son of God, sent from Father God, filled with the Spirit of God. And we're introduced to Him as the Son. Now, the next section of our Bibles, do you see in your Bible, eyes on your page, eyes on your page, do you see it, or on your phone, whatever you got, in verses 23 through 38, do you see what that is? Let me read the verse 23. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age. Being the son, I love this. Who did we just learn he was the son of? The son of God. But notice this, being the son, my Bible has parentheses, I love this, as was supposed, the son of Joseph. You see, Joseph was his stepdad because Jesus didn't have a human dad, but Joseph became his, his, his stepdad there, married his mother, and so uh, we have Joseph introduced to us as his earthly father. And that begins a string of Jesus' ancestry. 77 names for us listed in these verses until we go all the way back to Jesus' original ancestor, and we read this in verse 38. Notice, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam. What's the next word say? The son of God. Sound familiar? There's something Luke wants us to know about Jesus and Adam. He compares and contrasts them. The only two people, the only two humans who didn't have an earthly father were Adam and Jesus. The original son of God, Adam, and the ultimate son of God, Jesus. Now just hold on, file that away. That will be useful for us later. One of the things that we learned from um, the, the, the genealogies, you know, we find these all through our Bibles. Those were very important to the Hebrew people because this was the record of people to whom the covenant promises of God had been made. If you were outside of the, the promise, then you couldn't claim the covenant 
promises and you couldn't identify who the Messiah would be who was coming to fulfill the covenant promise. This is very important. More important to them than it is for us. Most of us in here could not name your great-grandfather. But they could. And it was very important. Unless you were like doing the Ancestry.com thing or the 23andMe thing, you really didn't, you know, really care about your ancestry. These people cared because it was, it signaled all the way back to the promises of God. Now just file that away because the next part of the story begins in chapter 4. And this morning we are going to learn how to fight the devil. Because Jesus fought the devil. Notice verse 1, and Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness. So Jesus coming off this great spiritual high, he's heard the voice of the Father, he's been filled with the Spirit, and that Spirit immediately leads him into the wilderness. That is not what you would expect to see. What you would expect to see is the Spirit leads him into this abundant life full of joy and happiness and removes every obstacle from his life because after all, he's the Son of God. And maybe he now is gonna go on this preaching tour and he's gonna create a great following. It's not what we see. The Spirit of God leads him into the wilderness. Let me ask you a question. Do you have room in your theology for the Spirit of God leading you into a wilderness? Are you in a wilderness right now? Do you realize it could be because you're following Jesus that you're in the wilderness? There are some lessons that can only be learned in the wilderness. And there are some battles that can only be fought and won in the wilderness. At any point, Jesus could have stepped right up to the boundary of the wilderness like, I'm not going in there, it's too hard. Do you you know who's in there? The devil's in there. There's no food, there's no water, just heat and rocks. And that doesn't look like any place I want to go. But that's where the Spirit led him and in obedience to the Spirit, he took the next step. And there will be times that the Spirit of God may lead you into a wilderness because there are some battles that need to be fought and some victories that need to be won there as well. So verse 2 says, For 40 days, being tempted by the devil, he ate nothing during those days, and when they were ended, surprisingly, he was hungry. Now, some of you can't go for like four hours, you know, before that happened. This 40 days. And this was, this was Jesus exercising self-discipline and self-control. And that hunger was a reminder of his spiritual hunger for God. Here's the first thing we're going to learn this morning. We are in a real battle with a real adversary. We're introduced to this character in the story named the devil. Now, I know that in your modern, Western, American, cultured, educated mind, it is hard for you to wrap your mind around the fact that there is a real adversary, a real devil that is opposing you in your relationship to Jesus. 
but he is real. He's called the devil. The word actually means adversary. Here's his history. He, he was not originally created as this evil monster that we think of, the devil. He was originally the worship leader in heaven. I've said this many times, but when you think of Micah, just think of the devil. That's what, that it, he, previously he was directing all the worship to, to, to God. And, and so, but after a while he like swelled up with pride. He's like, why is God getting all the attention around here? I'd like a little bit of the glory. And so he started to lead a rebellion against God. And he was so beautiful and so influential that he was able to influence a third of all the angels to follow him in his rebellion against God. And God, sensing the rebellion, kicked him and the one-third of the angels out of heaven, and God placed them in a very specific geographical spot in the universe. Guess where? On the surface of the earth. I could think of a lot of other places to put the devil. Under the earth, Pluto, you know, an asteroid somewhere out there far away from earth, but God put them in the same geographical territory that you and I occupy. You know what that means? That right now in this room, it is very likely that there are some fallen angels, some demons, and do you know what they're doing? They're doing today the same thing they were doing on the day they were kicked out of heaven. They are leading a rebellion against God, and they're trying to influence you to join them. And they hate God, and they hate everything that represents God. And that's why they hate you, because you reflect the image and the glory of God. That's why they hate your marriage, because it's in the loving and the forgiving and the grace over a lifetime that you reflect the loving and the forgiving and the grace of God. They want to destroy your marriage. They want to destroy your kids. They want to destroy this church. And they want to destroy your pastor. Somebody pray a prayer for the pastor right now. The devil's trying to destroy the pastor. Yeah, he's, just try, he's trying to destroy all of us because he hates God and he hates what God represents. And if he hates us, we find out that he hates us because we love Jesus and he hated Jesus. And in the wilderness, he is trying to tempt Jesus. What is this? We're getting ready to see these three temptations. Now, there were, I don't believe there were just three. I think it happened all day, every day, over the 40-day course. We have a representation here of these three different areas that we're going to study in here in a minute. But what was he trying to do? He was simply trying to get Jesus off of his God-ordained course. Jesus was on a course to offer himself on the cross as the sacrifice for sin for all who would believe. And Satan was trying to get him off that course. Temptations are always exit ramps to get off the course God wants for your life. Every temptation. And like, you know, an exit ramp in Chicago near O'Hare, once you get off the exit, you can never get back. You can never find your way back onto the interstate because there's always construction. You think you can easy off, easy on, doesn't happen in Chicago. Oh, and it doesn't happen with the devil either. You take the exit ramp, it's like you can never find your way back. And so that's the temptation. He's trying to get, he's trying to get Jesus off course. And so in verse three, we're introduced to the first of these temptations that he uses. Now notice it says in verse three, if you 
are the Son of God. The devil said to him, if you are the Son of God. The Son of God, why, why does this phrase keep showing up? By the way, who did the Father say Jesus was? The Son of God, and then the devil comes along like, if, if you, yeah, yeah, I mean, I know God said that, but I mean, really? If you, if you, if you are the Son of God, then, let me just stop right there. One of the greatest strategies of the devil is not to confront you directly with claims opposing God. All he wants to do is get you to doubt what God said is true. I mean, you, you, can't really, you can't really believe what God said, right? I mean, that was ancient history. That was another time, another place, another part of the world. I mean, that, that's so old and so ancient. Surely, surely what God said then is not really what you, you believe now, right? You see, he, he attacks Jesus at the point of his identity. And he'll do that with you as well. He'll come to you and he's like, I mean, if you're a child of God, then why do you keep sinning? If you're a child of God, then, then, then why doesn't God give you more favor and make your life easier? You ever, you ever heard those things? Yeah. He'll try to get you to believe you're not a child of God. And he's so tricky. Do you know what else he'll do? He'll try to convince you you are a child of God when you're not. He's so tricky. And this is what the devil does. He tempts you to sin. You resist, you resist, you resist, and then you step over the line, and then he tells you how stupid you are for sinning. Am I the only one that that happens with? Yeah. You have an enemy, you have a real adversary, and he is trying to tempt Jesus at the point of his identity. If, if you really, if you, you, you are not who God says you are. He'll tempt you at the point of your sexual identity. I mean, really, you, you believe God assigns male and female? Well, if you are male, if you are female, then why do you have these other temptations? You see, see how tricky he is? And so we need to accept the identity that God has given us and not let the devil talk us out of it. Jesus is trying to be talked out of the identity God has assigned to him. He says, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. Luke stops there, Matthew continues the quote, but every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. So Jesus confronts Satan with the written word of God. Guess where he quoted that from? Guess where in the Bible that quote appears? It is written, guess where it's written? It's written in the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. You know that part of the Bible that you skip over because it's so boring? 
He's saying, this is obsolete, this is useless, I'll never read that, where are the exciting parts? Yeah, that's the part that Jesus used to confront the enemy. You might not want to skip over that part. And so Jesus uses Deuteronomy to combat the lie. Here was the lie that he was using with Jesus. Your hunger for God can be filled with God's stuff. He knows he's hungry, and so he offers him bread. Let me ask you a question. Is there anything wrong with bread? Now, some of you are sitting out there thinking, well, white bread or wheat bread? Some of you are just thinking, no, it's carbohydrate, so it's evil. You should never do that. No, listen, good, bread is good, okay? Especially if you craft it into the form of a Krispy Kreme donut, that is ultimate bread right there, okay? So he offers him bread, nothing wrong with bread. Here's the thing, Satan rarely offers you bad stuff. He offers you good stuff that God created and uses it in a God-forbidden way. Satan is not a creator, he can't create anything. So he has to use stuff God created, which everything God created is good, and he has to take it outside the boundaries which God intended and offer it to you. And so sin is using God-created stuff in a God-forbidden way. And Satan always uses good stuff to tempt you. I mean, come on, let's just be honest, all right? Sexual temptation is what's there in front of us every day, all day. It's right there, especially in our sex-saturated society. Is sex bad? No, sex is beautiful. It's meant to be an adhesive for marriage. And yet you take it outside of marriage, and now it becomes something that is a temptation to actually destroy what God created in marriage. And so this is the thing. He's taking Jesus' hunger, which should be an indicator of his hunger for God, and tries to convince him, you can fill your hunger for God with stuff God created that will be a substitute for God. And that happens for us. Whether it's money or riches or power or influence or prestige or positions or houses, all those different things can become substitutes for God. There are people sitting here today who have no hunger for God because you have filled your life with good God-given stuff and yet you've missed God. Jesus said, not, I, not, no, no. Man shall not live by stuff alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So Satan comes at him again. Here's the second temptation. The devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment in time and said to him, to you I will give all this authority and their glory for it has been delivered to me and I will give it to whom I will. Verse seven, if... You then will worship me, it will all be yours. Now, can you imagine what Jesus must have been thinking at this point? Dude, it's already mine. I left all that stuff for a brief period of time so I could come down here and rescue people who are messing around with God's stuff. And so he combats him again with the word of God. Verse eight, Jesus answered and said, it is written. Guess where he's about to quote from? Deuteronomy. 
Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 13 says, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. And so the devil tempts him with this lie, your desire for worth can be achieved without worshiping God. Again, we all have a desire for purpose and significance and meaning and worth. But our ultimate significance, worth, and meaning is found worshiping God. And Satan uses the bait of worship. Worship a good thing, right? Good thing. All you have to do is admit, you have to redirect your worship over to something else. We're all worshipers. The question is not, are you a worshiper? The question is, what is the object of your worship? And so he redirects his worship and essentially says, look, you can have all the kingdoms now. You don't have to wait. If God loves you, why are you hungry? If God loved you, you wouldn't be in a wilderness. If God loved you, you could be the king of your own kingdom. What was he doing? He was trying to get him to have a crown without the cross. If he could get him now to buy into that temptation, Jesus would have avoided the purpose for which he came. His purpose was to go to the cross and to die for the sin of the world so that he could be resurrected, so that every knee should bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord, King of the universe. That's coming, but Jesus is gonna have to wait for it. It's gonna be three years. And Satan says, you can have it all now. You can have power without pain. You can have a cross. You can have a crown without the cross. And that's, that's what Satan does for you and I. It's like, you don't have to go to the cross. I mean, you don't, you don't, have, to, you don't have to believe in Jesus. You can, be, you can be king. I mean, Jesus is king, you're king. There's lots of kings, lots of sons of God. There's not one way. You don't have to go to the cross. If God loved you, he would give you more significance. You wouldn't be in a wilderness. You wouldn't be hungry. Here's the third lie that he uses, verse nine. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here. Now, by the way, if you ever hear a little voice in your ears like go throw yourself off a bridge or a mountain or a cliff or something, you can be sure that's the devil. If he told Jesus to throw himself off a cliff, he'd probably use that lie with you too. He's trying to get you to think that your life has no meaning, value, and worth. And so he uses that temptation. And, and you know, devil, devil's pretty smart. He, verse 10 says, for it is written. So he's realizing Jesus keeps combating him with the word of God. So now he goes on the offense. He's like, okay, Jesus likes to talk about the Bible stuff. So I'll try to use the Bible stuff on him. He takes scripture, misinterprets, misapplies it, twists it and tries to get Jesus to do something using a Bible verse. It's pretty crafty. Did you know the Bible, did you know Satan knows more scripture than you do? He does. And so in verse 10, it says, for it is written. 
He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. He's quoting Psalm 91 on Jesus. Jesus sees through the tactic in verse 12, and he says, and Jesus answered him, it is said you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Just take a shot in the dark where you think that might be written. Deuteronomy. Any doubt where Jesus was having his quiet time that morning? Yeah, he had his face in Deuteronomy, right? And so he's bringing back things that he'd been studying. He'd been storing these things away for such a time as this. And so he says, no, 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 no. It is written. It is written in Deuteronomy. You don't test God. And that would be a test. You see, here's what the devil would want you to to believe. Your tests of God's boundaries can be made with no consequences. You can break God's laws, not just his spiritual laws, but physical laws. You see, Jesus knew there was this thing that God created called gravity. And if you break the law of gravity, you quite likely will find out the law of gravity will break you. You can't live outside of God's law and expect there to be no consequences. And yet the devil has said those things to you. You can live a reckless life. You can be your own boss. You don't have to obey God's laws. You don't have to know God's laws. God's a God of grace. God's a God of love. And you can, you can live outside of God's boundaries and there will be no consequences. You can throw yourself off a cliff and somehow the angels will sweep you up. And that would be presumptive to think that God is a God of grace without also being a God of truth. It's a hyper grace theology that somehow God just kind of fixes all your problems and makes your life happy and wonderful no matter how you live. And so don't buy into the lie. He's trying to get us to believe that if God loved you, he wouldn't require you to live within his law. You could live any way that you wanted to. The next verse says in verse 13, and when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. And so there's gonna be repeated continued attacks, but Jesus wins the battle against the temptation from the devil. Now, as we finish this out, let me just say, everything that I've said so far in this message is the secondary application of this story. You see, we read this story, we've heard this story preached, and, and we enter into it like, okay, this is, this is here to teach me how to, how to fight Satan. And, and okay, it's here because I need to learn to fight Satan like Jesus fought Satan. And if I fight the devil the way that Jesus fought the devil, I'll win. Maybe I just need to learn Deuteronomy. That's my problem. I haven't been quoting enough Deuteronomy. And that's what I, if I could do that, then I'll win. That's not the main point of the story. If it was, Luke would have said that to you. Remember the question Luke's trying to answer. Who is Jesus? Who does the Father say Jesus is? The Son of God. Who does the devil learn Jesus is? 
the Son of God. And Jesus goes to battle with the devil, not just to give us an example, but to give us a substitute to fight the devil. Here's the second thing I wanted to say. Jesus didn't just fight the devil to be our example. Jesus fought the devil to be our replacement. We want to insert ourselves in the story and like fight like Jesus. That's not the main application. You see, our story's already been recorded by Luke. We don't fight like Jesus as much as we want to. We fight like Adam. Remember that son of God? How well did Adam do in his fight with the devil? Do you remember the story? The story is this. The very first man living in a perfect environment with a perfect wife. How many feel like you could do a little better if you had a perfect spouse? Okay. Yeah. A little less temptation if you had a perfect spouse? Yeah. Well, Adam had one. How many feel like if you had a perfect environment? Yeah. He'd probably do a little better. Well, Adam had all of the advantages of doing that. And then one day the devil came and began to tempt him. He tempted him with three temptations, essentially the same temptations that Jesus was tempted with. He showed him a tree. That tree had food, not bread, fruit. You hungry? Why don't you go eat some of that? It'll satisfy. As a matter of fact, the tree was beautiful. He, he saw how beautiful it was. Jesus saw the beautiful kingdoms of the world. And Adam saw this beautiful tree. And then he said, it's desirable to make one wise. And it was his pride. It's like, I could be like God. The devil said, you could be like God. You know how Jesus was like God and a king over kingdoms is like a God and you can be like a God. You can be a king over a kingdom. That, that, those were the temptations the devil gave to Adam. How'd he do? <laughs> Face plant. And that is representative of every person in this room. The truth is we all want to fight the devil like Jesus but we all really fight the devil like Adam. Loser! Now, there may be a few times that you resist temptation. You might even get really good at it. But then do you know what the temptation is? Pride. Pride and self-righteousness. Thank you. You're way ahead of me. You want to preach this sermon? You're doing great. <laughs> That's the thing. We get really... <laughs> and then pretty soon, we're filled with self-righteousness. And we forsake following Jesus. And so the lesson for us is this, the way you fight the devil is by fleeing to Jesus. Jesus not only fought the devil for us, he fights the devil through us. We have no ability in our own humanity to win the battle against sin, temptation, and the devil. That's why we flee to Jesus. And James 4 tells us the very simple formula for doing battle with your adversary. Three things. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. 
The word submit means to surrender, just like we sang about this morning. We place ourselves as closely aligned under the Lordship of Jesus, and then we resist the devil, and he will flee from us. Now, we get the order wrong here. We want to start with the second step. Resist the devil, resist the devil, because we think that somehow in our own strength, we can win that battle. You can't. Adam couldn't. What Adam needed, Adam, the original son of God, was he needed a replacement, ultimate son of God to fight the battle he could never win. And that's what Jesus did for us. Jesus chose not to divert from the course. Jesus went all the way through the temptation to the cross, ultimately giving his life as the Son of God, as a substitute for the original Son of God, Adam, in whom we have all, from whom we've all descended. And so it is faith in Jesus. It is trusting and resting and submitting to Jesus that gives us our only hope of winning any battle against sin, temptation, and the devil. Listen. If you've never submitted yourself to God fully and finally by faith, acknowledging I'm a loser, I've, I've lost the battle against sin, then today is the day to, to make that choice. If you've done that a thousand times, if you are in a battle, which you all are, the only way to win the battle is to submit yourself to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Run to him and allow him to fight that battle through you. And then when the devil offers bread, stuff, you can say, thank you very much. My hunger is ultimately satisfied in God. When the devil says, you can be the king of your kingdom. Thank you very much. I have a, I have a king that I serve. I'm happy to be in his kingdom. And when the devil says, just throw yourself off a cliff, you're no good, you're worthless, God will protect you. He's like, no, I think there's some laws that I need to stay within the boundaries. As you submit to those laws and those boundaries, Jesus gets the victory through you. I want you to bow your heads, close your eyes. And I want to give you a moment just before the Lord to obey that verse. Would you in this moment submit yourself to God in a fresh way? Maybe you need to acknowledge, I've been trying to, to fight in my own strength. Maybe you're like Jesus, you're in a wilderness this morning. Maybe you're tired, hungry, alone. Maybe you need to surround yourself with some people in this church. Maybe you need to get in a small group. Maybe you need to come to one of the pastors here this morning. Let them pray for you. But before any of that, would you just confess to the Lord, you're weak, you've lost the battle, you need a fresh new start. Then you can go out of here filled with God's Spirit. Ask Him right now to fill you as Jesus was filled with the Spirit before he entered the wilderness, today you can be filled before you step foot back in the world.
couple of weeks, we're going to celebrate believers' baptism. And maybe some of you have finally made the decision to submit your life to God, and yet you've never been baptized since that moment. You come to one of the pastors today, let us know. We'll get you baptized on February the 10th. Jesus, thank you for fighting in our place. Thank you for being our substitute, seeing us in our humanity as losers, just getting crushed by the enemy. One day, you fulfilled the promise to come and crush the head of the serpent as the offspring that we've been waiting for. Lord, thank you for fighting that battle. Thank you for fighting our battles. God, as we step out of here and enter into that that warfare, God, would you fight through us? God, when we feel like we're surrounded, remind us, God, that we are surrounded by you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.